keep that passage open. I hope uh, you've got a Bible with you. I loved hearing the, the rustle of pages. If you have to use a phone, that's okay, but don't get distracted. I would uh, highly recommend a, a paper Bible if you do have one, or maybe there might be some at a bookstore later. Uh, now, we're still getting set up tech-wise, so Justin, I'm just going to trust you to try and roll with me with the slides if you can. Okay, and I'll tell you to click if I think we're way behind. Thanks, mate. I believe in you. God who is mystery. How would you finish this sentence? I like to think of God as. It's a phrase that pops out sometimes, maybe from your own mouth, maybe from those around you, but it's one that can reveal quite a lot, can't it? For what do we make of those three little letters, G-O-D? Is it the, the grandfatherly figure up in the clouds, you know, smiling vaguely, but ultimately kind of removed? Are you more down the, uh, the Greco-Roman mythological path, a cranky Zeus-like figure, waiting to smite you for breaking arbitrary laws, or perhaps just on a whim? Or perhaps your mind goes more to the Eastern religions, that God is... Well, not just a god, but a, a plethora of gods, a, more, a, more a power than a person, a power to be appeased, persuaded, assuaged. I wonder when you last gave serious thought to God. Or perhaps more acutely, when you last wondered how he would like to be thought of. Now, I know that even in that sentence I've made some vast claims, claims of personhood using the masculine pronoun, supposing that such an answer is even possible, even building off the foundational premise that God is a reality and not just some outdated myth. Well, this weekend we have this vast task before us to give ourselves to this kind of contemplation, this rationalization, this reflection, this prayer about God. And we're going to be exploring some key questions, key questions of what is God, of how we know, and perhaps most importantly, who is God. And friends, I want to say it's really good that you're here, because I believe that there is nothing better that we can give our minds to. And I want us to start with the stance of listening, and to do so by a brief foray into some fiery moments in the scriptures where God breaks through into reality. So as we start, let me pray. Almighty God, please come near to us as we come near to you. May we use this time and space we have together to think true thoughts, to ask honest questions, but most of all, to be led to know you more truly and really. Amen. Two fiery moments. Now, it's a bit of a lie here because I'm just focusing on one due to time. But stay with me in that Deuteronomy chapter 4 passage. Israel is standing on the cusp of the promised land. And Moses, their leader, knows that his death is imminent. And so he's preaching. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's a series of sermons where Moses rehearses all that has gone before them. He tells them again what God did in saving them 
and how to live rightly with God as they enter this promised land in covenant with him. And as he tells this story in these opening chapters, he takes them back to the foot of Mount Sinai, back to Horeb. Pick it up at verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear the words, hear my words, so that they may learn to revere my words as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. Remember, don't forget what God has done in the past. How he spoke to us at the mountain. And how was it that they came near to God? What, what occurred in that instance, verse 11, you came near, you stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens, with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. And that was like a drumbeat through that passage you may have heard as Jonah read it. See, you can imagine the drama of the moment. Gathering to be addressed by God who has delivered you from Egypt and the slavery that you're in there. The mountain is shrouded with these billowing clouds of fire and then a voice speaks. And I was to think how this episode instructs us in our approach to God. The first thing to notice is to approach with care, to be careful. God is not some attraction to be toyed with. Now Moses knew this firsthand from his encounter with the burning bush. This is the second fiery moment in brief. Uh, intrigued by this bush that was alight but not being consumed, Moses turns aside and he comes near and God speaks to him and says, don't come any closer. Why? Well, not just good fire safety, but because God was present in the midst of the fire. And see, throughout the Bible, God's presence is spoken of in this, this way that has this attention to it, that he is both near and far, both close and yet obscure. His manifestation in the midst of fire and clouds is not just some meteorological coincidence. No, it communicates something about who he is and how we ought to approach him. See verse 24 back in our passage. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Have a think about fire for a moment. Now, there's something about teenage boys and fire that always raises alarm bells. Uh, I can remember a story from when I was uh, doing Duke of Ed back in high school, and we were hiking around Fraser Island, and we were in multiple groups, and we kind of did different routes and came back, and there was a group of boys who were bored one night, and as they sat around the fire, of course, who would like to jump over the fire? Now, it just so happens that one member of the group had decided during the day that he was a bit warm and decided to cut off the bottom of his tracksuit pants. And somehow, I was not present at the time, I was in the sensible group. I was a good boy, remember? 
somehow, in the midst of their falling around, one of these cut-off segments of this guy's pants, boom, caught a light. And he flicked it, and it landed on another guy's foot and burned, second-degree burns, it was horrible. This melting, plasticky polyester. Fire is dangerous. But there's also something mesmerizingly beautiful about it, isn't there? That you can just stare at a fire. It's mysterious. It's hard to capture. And so God is teaching us something. That it is in the midst of the fire that he speaks. This is a warning light, ultimately, in the context of this passage, of the temptation of idolatry. Something we're going to dip into more in tomorrow morning's talk. But the point is, God is not like so-called other gods. Again, you heard that repeated again and again throughout this passage. He is not found in a statue that you can set up and bow down to. He's not found in a medallion you can clasp for good luck. You cannot tame God. To try to do so is an affront to his being. For who... Verse 33, who heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? God is teaching his people to be careful in their approach to him. To approach him with right reverence, right fear, because he is indeed near. And in his nearness, God comes in the midst of the fire by a voice. Unlike the idols who are dumb and mute, our God speaks. Verse 7. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way our Lord our God is near to us whenever we pray to him? Or verse 36. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire and you heard his words from out of the fire. This is a fundamental truth about our God. That he is so transcendent and above us and yet draws near that we might hear his voice. Hear him speak. That we might know him. And in balance to these fearful warnings comes wonderful mercy. Verse 29 speaking of when the people would be in exile, away from the land that they're about to enter, away from God. If from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and all your soul. Israel saw the fire. They heard a voice, but they saw no form. So let's step back and reflect a bit on how this episode can help us this weekend as we approach God, approaching the fire. Next slide. Paramount is the reminder that God is not some object that we can master. That any attempt to domesticate him is dangerous ground. What stance ought we to have in approaching the knowledge and study of God? I would say it is humility and holy fear. Do not come any closer, the voice said to Moses, for this is holy ground. It was from the midst of fire that God spoke. 
Now, while Christians have the, the privilege of approaching God's throne of grace, a privilege we rightly enjoy, we must still remember that he is a consuming fire, utterly holy, wonderfully majestic. Uh, in one of my favorite children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, in the first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis captures this tension of God's greatness and his danger. See, when they, the children in the book hear of the Jesus-like Aslan, that he is a lion, little Lucy asks, is he, is he quite safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. The speaking animals. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Or Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, also says elsewhere, he's wild, you know. Not a tame lion. Uh, one theologian, to put it in a slightly more wordy way, uh, reflecting on his task as a theologian, puts it like this. There's a slide for this one, Justin. He says, it's easy for me as a theologian to forget that the divine object of my study is never simply that, but always the living, self-disclosing ground of my own understanding. God is always the source of all other agency. Yet my theological exposition of God may have all the liveliness of a laboratory specimen. And then I may begin thinking about God in those terms without even realizing it. Theologians are not called to render God's word yet more wordy. Surely the goal of theology is not a sententious balanization of mystery. Rather, theology fulfills its task by explicating not just the words of scripture and tradition, but ultimately that living encounter with the mind of Christ. For all his wordiness, note the heart there. The danger of seeing God as like a laboratory specimen that we poke and prod. And it's more like a living encounter. We approach God on his terms, not as a topic to be mastered, but a being to be known and known on his terms. If that's the stance we have, how is it that we come to know this transcendent God? Well, there are three broad paths that people take. Perhaps we might look to reason. Our culture holds this pretty high. Part of our Greek and Enlightenment intellectual heritage, we promote the power of reason and rationality to almost the extreme. That we can reason ourselves up to God, perhaps. And this has shaped all manner of philosophical inquiry over the centuries, including theological giants like Thomas Aquinas, you may have heard of him, who by reason kind of worked backwards and postulated that God logically is what he called the, the final cause, the immovable mover, the thing that first started, the domino that started every other part trickling down. He used the tools of science, of reason. And while we have these tools at our disposal and ought to exercise them, I would argue, ultimately they're not enough. Because God is not of this creation. God is mystery. So we could look to tradition 
Now, while in, while in the West we're kind of bred to have a suspicion about tradition and histories as impressing on us some kind of ideological uh, agenda or perpetuating the power holders, for many in the world, looking to tradition is their starting point, to look to our forebears for how we understand God and the world and our place in it. And to be sure, we would do well to understand ourselves as standing not in a novel place, but in a procession of those who've gone before us, the shoulders of giants. That we don't just come blank and novel in our thoughts, but we inherit a great heritage. And the history of the church has much, much to teach us. Understanding how the church has read the Bible, clarified truth, defended the gospel is so helpful. But it's not infallible. And theology requires a constant rearticulation. So we should give heed to our history, our tradition. But it too is not enough. Where else could we go? We could go to experience. If looking back is not enough, maybe I just need to look inwards. Here in the secular West, we breathe what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls expressive individualism. The you-do-you culture and all of its accompanying concepts. I like to think of God as, or I don't like the idea of God as. Or it might be through experience from external stimuli, praise and worship, the sense of transcendence floating past the breakers at sunrise, marveling at the intricacies of creation. Again, we ought not to be surprised that God can and does make himself known through these things. Through experience. Through looking at the world. Romans 1 testifies since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. We can know something about God. However, the Bible also teaches us that sin has tainted every part of our being, including our ability to know properly and to know God through our experience or our minds. Experience by itself is not enough. So where does that leave us? Well, it's just what we mentioned before. We approach God on his terms, reliant on his self-revelation, his self-disclosure. See, revelation is the normative principle of theology. The conviction that God has spoken. That he has revealed himself to us, not out of necessity, not that he needed us, but by grace through his acts and his words. You saw that in Deuteronomy. He saved the people, the saving acts of the Exodus, and then he spoke to them. All of our knowledge of God is from and through God. There are three kinds of revelation we see. There's events, things that God does. There's words, things that he speaks. And importantly for us this weekend, there are persons. I'll leave you hanging on that one. See, the Bible is like a masterpiece. It's every brushstroke, 
every genre, sentence structure, book and style comes together to communicate to us facts about God, about our condition, about his divine acts to save us. And unless God speaks, he remains shrouded in mystery, hidden to us. Yet here, even here at the foot of the mountain, a voice issues forth from the fire. Israel knew their God by his word. And friends, we have an even better word. For on another mountaintop, as some of God's people gathered, amidst a shrouding of clouds, a voice was heard again. And a form was seen this time, the man Jesus Christ. The word made flesh has made God known. See, there's an analogy here to what we experience all the time, that knowing someone can only go so far without some sort of self-disclosure. If I just stood there mute while Tim interviewed me, you would not have found out much. You may have made some judgments about me. See, you can look at me, you can discern that I'm a a white male, starting to bald, mid-30s. Perhaps you might even include that I have a family if you watch my interactions over this weekend. But to know me, to really know me, I need to share myself with you. Theologian Catherine Sonderiga says this. She says, We see something indeed of the sovereign freedom of God in the mastery of human persons over their self-disclosure to one another. We know each other as we are given the gift of another's inwardness. This is perhaps the biggest grace, that our God has not remained distant and far off and disconnected, but he has come near and opened up his life to us. The life we shall see of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and has invited us into that very fellowship. See, coming to know God means attending to his self-revelation as he has revealed it. But if we're dependent on God to know him, and if he is of a different kind to us, all knowledge that we have of him will necessarily be limited. God is always condescending to show himself to us. He's accommodating himself to our weak little minds, our creaturely limitations. But that's not to say that we can't know God truly, but that we can't know him exhaustively. There is a level of incomprehensibility about God. Five talks, I'm afraid, is not even going to scratch the surface. So, we've got our work cut out for us, don't we? But it's not without despair, because God has indeed opened himself up to us, praise the Lord made it possible for us to know him and know him truly, if not exhaustively. So I want us to think just for a moment about how we're going to go about this task of theology. Next slide, please. Here are some parameters that are good to keep in mind as we go through this weekend. We're going to look first and foremost to God's word. We have the Bible. That's our first point of call. And in so doing, 
We're going to marshal all of our abilities, our intellects, our reasoning, to faithfully order our thoughts to say true things about God based on what he has said to us. See, one of the great benefits of conferences like ETC is it's rare you get space to do this. To do this kind of task of not just looking at one passage, but trying to pull together what the Bible says about a topic. To do this work of doctrine. And doctrine, or systematics it's called, requires an act of integration. It's taking what we discover throughout the Bible and bringing it together in a way that that makes sense. Not fabricating it, but trying to see the fuller picture. And as we undertake the chief task of a doctrine of a triune God, we're going to move between the details and the big picture to see how what we read in certain passages contributes to and is shaped by and shapes the whole. And we're not seeking to create some sort of finished product you know, that we can sit on a shelf and let it just gather dust. <laughs> no, theology is much more dynamic than that. It's not necessarily novel, not always new, but we rediscover things as we seek to know God in himself and God in relation to all other things. I like to think of it kind of like a bike wheel. Got a better picture there. Any other cyclists in the room? Where are my guys? Yes. See, for a wheel to function properly, to go smoothly and straight, without any wobbles, it has to be what's called true. And for that to happen, each spoke on the wheel has to be rightly tensioned. I discovered this once when I managed to break two of my spokes. Suddenly, my front wheel was all over the place. And Christian theology and doctrine is a lot like this. It has at its center and primary focus the triune God himself. He is the hub, if you like, with each other aspect of faith, whether it's creation or humanity or eschatology or ethics or the church, all sitting connected and interconnected and in relation to one another. And what that means is we've always got to have an eye on the system. Because if we over, overplay one aspect of theology, it begins to pull the other ones out of kilter. And all of this has an end to lead us to the, the transcendent joy of a true wheel. Rolling smoothly, lifting our souls to behold the one true God in praise. So as we do theology this weekend... With humility, knowing our creaturely and sinful limitations, we also do so in community, amongst the fellowship of saints present and past, that we, that we share, we ask questions. And so I want to encourage you to do that, to make the most of your review groups, to, to take those opportunities at mealtimes to to wrestle through something that's caught you up or a question you have, to speak about God as you walk between sessions or sit and enjoy the beauty of creation. We do theology in, based on the word, in community, and perhaps most important for us to remember, we do so in the presence of God. We do not speak of God like he's out of the room. <laughs> 
And so above all, let our task be prayerful. So, let me wrap this up. As we proceed, central to our approach is the conviction that, next slide. Oh, there's one missing there. Never mind. You've got to fill in the blank in your outline, I believe. There we are. The conviction that the God of the gospel is revealed by the gospel of God. That is driving all of the talks. The God of the gospel is revealed by the gospel of God. That scripture speaks of God's divine acts, most centrally in the sending of his son in the incarnation and the sending of his spirit at Pentecost. Not only do we see God saving, but also revealing himself as he saves. And because of this, the very shape of this revelation, that's why you'll see I err away from trying to boil everything down to just dot points and propositions about the Trinity. Because that's not how we come to know the Trinity. We come to know that God is triune by this overwhelming, wonderful narrative of God sending, opening himself up to us in divine love and initiative for us and for our salvation. Theology is done prayerfully, in community, and in the presence of God. So, let me just finish by showing you where we're headed this week. Uh, you may have already twigged that these talks are designed to stretch you a little bit. Uh, they're probably going to be different to your, uh, if you go to church, the talks you have there. I'm aiming for something between a sermon and a lecture. Okay, We'll be dealing with God's word, but we're going to be pushing our minds to think and integrate expanding them, hopefully being stoked to worship and deepen our love and fuel our mission and sustain our lives as we do it. And so having begun our journey with these just laying the groundwork, these questions, these observations, thinking about our right approach, thinking that and realizing that the God of the gospel is revealed by the gospel of God, we'll start our journey properly tomorrow. We're going to continue our contemplation tomorrow morning of God's godness. To consider the clunky question of what is God? And especially that he is above and beyond. Over Saturday and Sunday then, we're going to move to thinking much more specifically about the Trinity. The question, who is God? And we're going to have our expedition shaped by the historical sending of the Son... God with us, and the Spirit, God in us. We'll explore the claims of doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity and what characterizes the distinct persons and their distinct works in the Son achieving redemption and the Spirit perfecting it. And finally on Monday, we're going to cast our eyes and our minds forward to focus on that vision of life with God that the Bible ends with. That salvation is not just something static and bland, but is rich. That it stems from the very nature of our God, that it entails us entering into communion with him himself. God above and beyond. God with and for. God in and through. And finally, God all in all. So I want to finish with an invitation. 
I want to invite you to come to the mountain, so to speak, to approach the fire. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that God has gathered us, that he's given us this gift of time apart from the normality of life, time as we celebrate those precious central events of Easter, that we have the chance to explore what I think is arguably the greatest subject we could ever turn our minds to, the true and living God. I want to ask, will you come to know him? In John 17, Jesus prays an astonishing prayer. This is eternal life, that they, he means you, know you, the only God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Whether you're here and you've been a Christian your whole life, whether you're working things out for the first time as an adult, or whether you're exploring for the very first time, we all have the same need. Our greatest need is to know God. And he has made himself known. Let me pray. Our Lord who has spoken, help us this weekend to approach you with humility. We pray that you will draw near to us, be with us by your spirit. May our thoughts and words be pleasing to you, seeking what is true and ending in praise. Reveal yourself to us more fully and deeply across these days, that we may know you, delight in you, and rejoice in you. Amen.